This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. All right, huge thank you for the Divine Canines for coming into the co-op studios. They've got their uh, Barks for Beers uh, event coming up in May. I will have information posted on the co-op website. So um, now it's a great honor of mine to to bring into the co-op studios Kyle Johnston, who is winemaker at RLV. Uh, and Kyle, so welcome to the studio. What, what does RLV stand for? Rancho Loma Vineyards. All right, and... So this is a relatively new winery here on the show. I, I try to um, keep everybody up to date on what's kind of going on in the Texas uh, wine industry. It's a real booming industry, right? And um, and so Rancho Lomo is is one of the uh, and Rancho Lomo Vineyards is one of the real new. I mean, your first vintages was yeah, what? 2016 was our first vintage, and uh, then we opened the tasting room doors uh, just this past January. Excellent. So can you kind of bring us back to the, the time when, uh, when some, some folks were, were kicking around the idea? Uh, I guess we should first mention that the, that the vineyard and winery is in Coleman, Texas, right? Coleman, Texas, just south of Abilene. Just south of Abilene. And that's um, in Coleman County, which we'll talk about, yeah. which might come into naming the wine um, because it's not actually currently in an AVA. Um, so, so what was, have the, the owners kind of been thinking about, uh, planting a vineyard there for a while or, um, you know, yeah, tell I us think about it was definitely, the, uh, it's been like a three, four year process. I know, um, there's a group of owners out of Abilene, uh, the brand deckers and Headstreams, and they've been long time visitors to Rancho Loma, the restaurant out in Valera and got to know Robert and Lori, the owners of the Rancho Loma and made a, you know. So, so there's, so the, it's kind of like a destination, right? I mean, as far as what is going on, definitely, out there. It's, it's getting out of the big city and and out to the ranch, um, which is where our vineyard is. I've got about four acres out there. Yeah. So, and then in the um, in the, the the kind of the compounder, there's restaurants. There's what, what's all going on in uh, well, apart trying, from the we're, vineyard? We're and trying we'll to draw some more restaurants and things like that. I think once the winery gets up and running, and and people know that it's there. You know, maybe we can bring in some some restaurants. Right, right. But currently, there's there's what there's. We've a, got a pizzeria. Yeah. Um, we've got a deli, downtown deli. Um, and is got, there and and there's like a, a a pretty nice restaurant on the uh, at Rancho Lomo. Right? At Rancho Lomo, yeah, and it's basically reservation only. They have about twenty seats, and they do a fixed menu. Wow. wow. Excellent. I bet that that might be fun. We'll, we'll kind of get into pairing your wines with food and whatnot, but, but they, they probably have some fun uh, pairing there at the restaurant, right? Definitely, and that's part of the mantra of the winery is you know, not just making premium wines, but wines that pair well with food. Yeah. Know, the, the marriage between the two and how they complement each other. Right, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're all about that here. So um, 2016 is the first vintage, but as I think a lot of my listeners know, uh, you need to plant a vineyard quite a number of years before you actually get a crop, right? So, so what was, give us a little bit of the timeline as far as the, the, the vineyard goes. Right. So when I came on board uh, in February of last year, they had already kind of picked out a vineyard site um, for our estate vineyard. 
and that was out at Rancho Loma's Ranch. So we've got about four acres of Grenache, Syrah, and Morved, and that was partly uh, or mostly one of our owners is Dr. Ed Hellman, and he kind of facilitated which varieties we'd plant out there. And we knew we kind of wanted to do you know Rhone style GSM. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Dr. Ed Hellman? Because um, he's he's one of the, you know, I think one of the um, almost foundational or one of the professors in the industry, right? That has really Definitely. helped a he's, lot of he's wineries. one of the more well-known viticulturalists in the state. He's helped a lot of different growers um, get off the ground and, and when they need help. Um, yeah, they just call him. And he also wrote probably the seminal book, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he wrote one of the one of the more seminal books on uh, on growing grapes in Texas. Yes, yeah. He's, yeah. he's <laughs> definitely one of the, I don't want to say founding fathers, but, you know, he kind of came in at a time, a pivotal time, and kind of took took us to another level. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and, and you kind of uh, had a little, some more experience with him when you were studying. Uh, is that true? Or? Right, so... Whenever I was getting my master's, he was one of my professors and even sat on my board for thesis. Very uh, cool. So we got to know each other then, and, and he's kind of how I became affiliated with RLV. So you've got uh, Rancho Lomo, which is this 20-unit um, sort of uh, getaway with restaurant, and then RLV Vineyards, or RLV, uh, is the name of the, the winery and, and the vineyard. Tell us kind of, you know, uh, so there was a lot of thought that went into planting this, this vineyard, right? And then what are the grape varieties that are, that are featured there? Yeah, so I think, some, you know, some of our owners had visited Rancho Loma for a long time. They, they kind of got to know Robert and Lori, and, and Robert kind of planted the seed about possibly doing a vineyard and maybe a winery. And uh, the, these group of owners are really passionate about not just about wine, but about wine and food. And, uh, and, they, and, they, and they, they were kind of collectors in their own right, right? And right. They've been, you know, been all over the world. They, they purchase wines from different importers, and so very well-versed in premium wines and, and they wanted to kind of have that you know for their own and 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 try to put texas really on the map right uh, right in in the u.s and so then you kind of come in um having you know we're having you know gotten your master's in viticulture and enology and you know they so they had kind of somebody on ed on the the vineyard front um, and then you kind of bring this, this winemaking knowledge to the team. Well, right? yeah. So Ed had called me, I was getting ready to go into har- my second harvest at Hilmi Cellars, which is where I was at. And, you know, he called me in August and I was actually coming back from the high plains, visiting some of our growers. I kind of ended up doing some, a lot of grower relations while I was at Hilmi. So got to know a lot of the growers, really good people up there. And, um, I was on my way back kind of going through close to, close to Coleman and, yeah. uh, and he kind of told me about the project, and I kind of had horse blinders on going into harvest, you know. Right, right. I mean, there's so much going on, right? And you have to be so on point. Right. It's like hard to think of projects like past a month or two, you know. Right. And, I, and especially since I had to go home and Google where Coleman was, you know. <laughs> yeah. it's, it was, I uh, did too, yeah. Yeah, I think most people do. But honestly, if you look at it, at the state of Texas and you kind of put your finger at where you would think is the middle, it's... Coleman's it's pretty much pretty right in the middle, there, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, so I, at the time, I couldn't really even you know think about an opportunity in Coleman. But and <laughs> I went back in December and you know met with Ed, met with Robert and Lori, saw the space that they wanted to put the winery in. Yeah, 
which uh, was kind of hard to visualize, to be honest, at the time. Cause, right. You know, it was a shell of a building. Right. You know, and there was piles of pigeon feces, you know, <laughs> sacked pretty high. And um, so rustic, right? Rustic. Yeah, rustic. Just, that's a good word for it. And and so, but did but you had so you know we we'll kind of want to talk more about the vineyard, but then you had. Um, kind of uh, complete control to, to say, hey, you know, I want these kinds of tanks and these sorts of things? Yeah, so outfitting the winery was basically I had full autonomy. You yeah. Know? So they, they kind of gave me a budget and and said, here's, and, and you know, and designing the winery with our architect. And it was cool to have and, and for that folks, control to be able to just get what I, they, you know, they gave me everything I needed. Right. You know, and I basically got everything I want. That is like the holy grail for uh, a winemaker is to be like, you know, you're on board. What kind of tanks? What what are the gadgets and toys that you want? Well, that, and that was part <laughs> of the appeal of the position, you know, as a young winemaker. Yeah. You know, my first head winemaking gig, I get to start a winery from the ground up and then totally outfit it. I mean, it was unbelievable experience, right? It was, it was great experience. Yeah. And not just, you know, on the winemaking side, but on the construction of a winery. Yeah. Know, to get that sort of experience. And so did you kind of learn some things? Did, did some things like not go right? Or, or, or I mean, I'm sure that there were so many decisions that had to be made. And, you know, would you do it differently if you had to do oh, it definitely. again? I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, where do we put the HAVC, you know, HVAC, the, where do we put the chiller? You know, yeah. there was all these decisions to, you know, like that. You, you don't even think about as a consumer, you know, what goes in, you know, planning wise for a winery. Right. So that, that was cool to kind of get that experience. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and I like to, to kind of to, to highlight that as far as what, what the behind the scenes are for, you know, building up a winery from the ground up. But they are. So, um, you know, a lot of wineries start by and they might never get past the buying bulk wine sort of deal. And you kind of started um, with that. So the vineyard was planted, but then it was like, hey, we've got our facility. Or, you know, so, can we make some wine? Yeah, we planted the vineyard in April of last year. Um, Grenache, Shiraz, Morved. And like I said, you know, they had had the, the soil tested prior to, you know, me getting there. So right. I knew that it was, it was ideal for growing grapes. Right, right. We had a nice site um, right on the, on the hillside. Um, so, you know, air can kind of flow down and through. Uh, the, you know, the, the only thing we run into is a little bit of drainage issue. Okay. But uh, it's, it's been kind of addressed, the erosion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, um, well, that airflow is just essential, and we've talked about it a lot on this show, just as far as all, you know, the great vineyard sites of the world have this kind of well air flowing so that mold is less of an issue, and it's just... Definitely, yeah. You know, we, we in Texas, we run into, like, downy and powdery and, and black rot, and so just having that airflow... right. And predominant wind flow. Yeah. So and then so you see that less. So so um, you planted the vineyard and then um, did you use some of your connections to to kind of kick off with some wines? So they had actually um, worked with Doctor Reddy in in the High Plains. Yeah, uh, from Dr. Reddy. Vin- you'll see Reddy Vineyards on Reddy vineyards a lot, a lot all of over labels. our bottles. Um, yeah. So Doctor Helman and Doctor Reddy, are good friends, and we lease about sixteen acres of vines from his vineyard. And then we have Texas Vineyard Management Company that manages those rows to our specifications. So, you know, Dr. Reddy, right? You know, really well-known grower in the state, has yeah. made, made grown grapes for a long time, done really well. Um, basically, instead of just leaving our rows up to him to manage, which would basically get managed the same way as, as everything else, 
Yeah. We've hired this other company to kind of give us a little more control. Can you, can you, can you kind of, um, because I always talk about the variables of a vineyard just being like, there's so many variables in a vineyard. Can you give us an idea as far as like, what's maybe something that you would specify that another yeah, winery so, you might know, not? Density of the canopy, um, you know, amount of clusters per vine. Which would really affect the wine quality, right? The De- intensity. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and so we had we had our team go through and actually shoot thinned our rows, which I don't think had been done out there. Uh, the downside of that for you know our first year was that a lot of those canes that were left over weren't fruiting, but we'll we'll kind of see those bounce those canes bounce back this year. So we feel like our yields are going to be be back up. Yeah, and and so so that's always like the balance. Like you still need wine, right? You you, you need to have uh, productive shoots and canes, but yeah. Right. So we had so we had our vineyards in the high plains. The owners wanted to open, you know, in January with red wine, and right. You know, you're, I'm sure your listeners know it takes a little longer to make reds. Right. Yeah. So we were able to acquire some reds from another winery that we felt like was making wines on par with what what we wanted to do. Right. Uh, so basically, I went and selected barrels brought them back to our winery, put the blends together. Right. And so, you know, we've got some two. And I, and I didn't actually, you know, I didn't enter those. They're solid reds. Yeah. And, but I didn't want to enter them in any competitions because I didn't ferment them, you know. Right, right, so right. There's that pride I probably could have entered them, but yeah there's what did i don't want to take credit for that so give 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 the listeners a like a um you know how do how do bench trials and blending trials go like how it, is there a, is there an art to that or um, yeah like, there's definitely an art and i think folks might think of it as just like and it's just fun <laughs> well what's cool with what you know and some people may winemakers may not think this is cool but i've worked with like 13 different grape varieties yeah um and so it is kind of a headache logistically sometimes but once everything's fermented and done and barrel and you go, it gets to that point of blending and you have a lot of options. Right. And so, you know, my goal is to make what makes the best wine. Right. And so you have these different, all these different grape varieties that you can kind of blend together and see where they kind of, yeah, what what makes the best wine? So What's, do you do you taste them kind of all first and say, hey, I want to use this uh, wine to maybe beef up the acidity yeah, a little that's bit kind more? Of the, that's the first step is we taste them individually, right? And we say, okay, this is kind of lacking on the back end. Um, need, it's kind of needs a little body in the middle, right? Let's see if this you know Tanat adds anything to that, or let's you know see if Merlot kind of adds a little complexity. And so that's kind of what we're looking for is. And, and it depends on the style of the wine that we're doing. Right. Um, well, so now do you feel, so eventually um, RLV is going to be um, these th- the Rhone varieties, right? Only is, is that? that or, or I mean, is, it'll be Rhone varieties, and then we'll, we're throwing in a couple Italian varieties, Montepulciano, um, Sangiovese. Yeah. Which are doing amazing in the state Barbera. of Texas, right? Yeah. They're so doing- okay, so the, the 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 estate vineyard, which we can't call a state uh, because it's not in an AVA, but the estate vineyard is planted to the Rhone varieties. Yes, and then, and then you'll be able to kind of play with other vineyards and other kind of cool things that you see around the state. Right. Okay. And and we've got some interest in and around Coleman County to to plant vineyards for us, and and hopefully our vineyard manager will get an opportunity to to manage those those vineyards and, yeah, so, and, and we'll kind of work out an agreement that you know if we're managing it you know they might be able to make their sell, wine there as well sell the, well they would sell us the fruit you know kind of at a not a discount but we work out an agreement that if we're you know we manage it for them and so and we'll buy all the fruit right 
So, so that way there's almost a, a, a guaranteed customer right away. And, right. and that's almost the way to build like a, a, a growing region. Right. Right. And that's kind of the goal, you know, the, the end game for us is to make Coleman County an area that is known for premium wines. Right. Can you, um, we've got a couple minutes before we have to take a break, yeah. but can you, um, can you kind of give us like a, an, an overview of the Texas uh, wine growing regions? I, I always like uh, hearing this from winemakers and maybe insert like your own impressions as far as, um, hey, this, you know, High Plains gives a certain style or, you know, Hill Country is a certain style. Um, but give us like an overview because I feel like most consumers just think of Texas, right? Right. And, and meanwhile, there's all these like uh, other areas that have their own character. Yeah. I mean, most, in my experience, we've mostly bought fruit out of the high plains, which is mostly what I've worked with. Right. But from what I understand, like Hill Country, there's smaller vineyards that uh, some of these producers have kind of had relationships with wineries. And these wineries have kind of said, hey, you know, let's try this variety, let's plant this. And kind of experiment a little bit because I think sometimes we're getting caught up in like Tempranillo and Viognier and some of these varieties that have done really well. Um, but we need to kind of continue to scratch scratch the surface on, on, on what does well here, which I feel like we're barely scratching the surface. Right. You, know? And, you know, Texas really is still in its infancy of winemaking and viticulture compared you know, to the rest of the world. Um, so, so do you think, so, um, so you think that there's, um, so almost like this getting high on the, the Tempranillo or the, you know, the Sangiovese craze, we need to start like exploring varieties that folks have never heard of. Right. So, I mean, I think Tempranillo makes solid wines. I mean, people have proven that in Texas. Um, I'm just not totally convinced that it's like the primo grape for Texas. Right, right. What, what, what is your, can I just, um, you know, just, just open up the, the, the floodgates here and what, if you had to like live with one variety for the rest of your Texas winemaking life, what, what would it be? <laughs> Probably Syrah. You okay. Because you can make a really good rosé out of it if you needed to, you know, on, on a bad year, if the fruit wasn't awesome, you know. Uh, but really, the Syrah that I got this year was... Just probably the best that I had. Yeah, and and really coming from the Northern Rhone, and you know you got good color, good, it, great it, color. Yeah, and I mean it was from from the time I put it in barrel, it was kind of the rock star of the harvest. Well, cool. Well, let's we're going to take a break. We're going to hear our uh, wine events calendar uh, of all the stuff that is going on in the Austin area for if you are a wine and food lover, and we will be right back with uh, Kyle Johnston, who is winemaker of RLV out in Coleman, Texas. It's Tuesday, April 25th, and there are so many fun wine and food events in the upcoming weeks in Austin, Texas. Tonight, Tuesday, April 25th at 5.30 at the Carillon, winemaker Sergio Quadra from Fall Creek Vineyards will present red and white wines from their Vintners selection, as the Carillon's chef Dan Bressler presents mouthwatering appetizers. Thursday, April 27th, at Vine Vault on Congress, they'll be hosting a tasting of six 100-point Robert Parker scored wines. More information at vinevault.com. Also on April 27th, there will be a tasting at Italic with Ricardo Scara from Paolo Scavino in Barolo, Burgundy. Ricardo's a friend of the show, and he has been on before talking about Piedmont. Uh, this is a tasting of the wines followed by a pairings dinner 
Uh, for more information, you can seek the Italic Facebook page, facebook.com slash ITALICATX. And of course, April 28th through the 30th is the Austin Food and Wine Festival. Tons of local and internationally acclaimed chefs and winemakers. More information at austinfoodandwinefestival.com. Saturday, April 29th from 1 to 8 p.m. at the French Legation will be the Love Belgian Beer Fest, benefiting the Boys and Girls Club of Austin. Local breweries and imports will be showcased, will be showcasing Belgian beer styles. More information at eventbrite.com. May 3rd at 7 p.m. at Central Standard on Congress will be a multi-course wine dinner with Dina Mandavi, daughter of Michael Mandavi and granddaughter of the famous Robert Mandavi, and now she is director of Folio Wine Group. Um, More information at eventbrite.com. If you have a wine-related groovy event that you would like mentioned on the calendar, email me at markrayshap at koop.org. Support comes from Austin Community College, hosting the 2017 Vision and Voice Award Reception, Friday, April 28th at 6 p.m. at the ACC Eastview Campus. Learn more about this AISD poetry initiative at visionandvoice.org. So, Kyle, you know, take us back to, we talked about, was kind of your first inspiration of wine uh, on the, the, the kind of the academic side and getting your master's? Or um, how, how did, like, what, did you, what was your formative moment where you're like, you know, I really want to do this wine thing? Well, the seed was definitely planted probably when I was in high school. So my grandfather has been best friends with Raymond Hack, who's got Hack Winery right, Vineyards right. down in Santa Fe, Texas on the Gulf Coast. He specializes in you know, Blanc du Bois and Lenoir or Black Spanish, and is kind of known for his Madeira. And I kind of would help, you know, when they would bottle, I'd go help and, and during harvest and help out whenever I could with production. And so that that's when I think the seed was kind of planted. And I did my undergrad at SMU, and it was kind of after that when I had that pivotal moment, like, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? What do you see yourself doing? And, and, and there's, I have this memory of being down in his cellar and you can just, you could just smell the fermentation and the red wine. And I don't know, there's something kind of romantic about it. Yeah. So that, that whole, and it is, I mean, being around a winery during harvest is like, yeah, I think anyone who's majestic, you know, who's enthralled with wine when they walk into a winery and, and, and you can smell yeah, the fermentation the and, and it, everything's alive, right? Right. And then, and there's so many cool experiences that you can have uh, throughout that time. Like, you know, your mind is opened up to like, wow, these grapes are coming from this vineyard and it's so different from this other vineyard. Right. You, and, and when you start to realize, you know, or learn more about the process, everything that goes into it, you know, and so there's the whole vineyard side. And then once you get it to the winery, there's a full breakdown of just processing the fruit and then a breakdown of how you age the reds. I mean, all the different coopers and, and compositions of barrels and toast levels. and Right. So it's that variability that almost it's like this thing, this thing is so complex, I need to know more. Right. So when you talk about, you know, is there art in blending? I mean, there's art really in the entire process. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then... So at that point, you're, you're kind of inspired. You're like, hey, this is something I really want to do. And, uh, and was that when you kind of went in to be like, okay, I need to study this and, and get my master's in it? Or did you right. have some pieces in between? Well, I definitely wanted to be educated. So, yeah, I went to Texas Tech. Um, they have a viticulture enology program. Um, 
but I figured I could go ahead and get my master's since I'd already had and just specialize in V&E. Right. And while I was there, I, you know, I had heard a lot about Kim McPherson and how, you know, he was kind of one of the better winemakers in the state and has been doing it for a long time. So I was like, man, well, I need to get with this guy. You know? <laughs> uh, so I actually ended up working for his wife initially and then kind of met Kim through working at her restaurant and he invited me to come work harvest for him. Now, so you had to go out. So Kim is based out out of. Uh, he's in kind, Lubbock. He's in Lubbock proper, yeah. right? So did yeah. you 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 kind of went out and set up shop there for a little bit? Yeah. So while I was getting my master's, I lived in Lubbock for two and a half years and and worked harvest there with Kim. Oh right, right, right. And right. also kind of worked at Texas A and M's AgriLife Extension Research Vineyards as well. While I was there and helped Jason Santani out at Yano Estacado when he needed it. Yeah. So tried to just be a sponge and draw experience where I could. Yeah. I just met, uh, Jason was really, and really liked, uh, kind of hanging out with him. Yeah. Um, he's my boy. <laughs> shout out to Jason. Um, so then, you know, so, so, so from there, what, what, what did, um, you know, you just wanted to kind of find the right project. I mean, right. I mean, working with Kim was invaluable really. I mean, he taught me so much. And then I met Eric Hilmy through, through that relationship and Eric offered me a job at, at a school. And so I literally graduated, you know, with my degree, got married to my beautiful wife, Rachel, <laughs> moved to Fredericksburg and started a new job within like three weeks of each other. Oh, my goodness. And um, was that like right around harvest time or? That was uh, February. Okay. So okay. So you had some time, some time before. And, yeah. Before then, uh, you know, your wife would get upset at you for spending so much time in the vineyards around harvest time, right? right. <laughs> well, she, she understands the, you know, the rules of dating a winemaker or right. being married to a winemaker. <laughs> right. we, uh, you know, and we were, even when we were trying to get pregnant, we we're like, okay, we have, yeah, is this we have this window, you know, because <laughs> right. not about to be, you know, trying to give birth to a baby right, don't, in, in August. Right, you know? don't have a baby during harvest. Right. <laughs> right. Well, congratulations. Um, uh, you know, um, so, so y'all are pregnant. Uh, Rachel's pregnant. And, and what, um, when, when's, when's the baby due then? Josie Kyle's due in, on May 11th. Okay, perfect timing for a winemaker. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And um, cool. And so, so then, you know, starting the job at Hilmi, and they're doing really wonderful things, right? Definitely, and Eric's a really smart guy. Um, Brad Buckaloo's a winemaker there and learned a lot from Brad. I mean, even aside from winemaking, he taught me how to, like, rewire plugs, you know. It's just. I think that folks don't really understand, you know, how much of the winemaking job that is, like the fix it. Aside from winemaking, yeah, if something breaks, you, you're the one that's got to fix it. Right. And, you know, most, most of the time. And we're talking, you know, forklifts. We're talking, you know, all kinds of cooling forklifts, systems. pumps, chillers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, the handyman's job. It's a and, constant grind. Right. Um, and then, of course, when uh, RLV was opening up, they, they kind of snatched you. And it was attractive to you because, well, it also, <clears throat> because it also meant moving out to Coleman, right? Yeah. Aside from the job, which, you know, driving into Coleman definitely isn't what draw, you know, captured me, you know, cause it's, it's, a, you know, it's a country town, you know, it's an, right. it's a rural town. Right. But that was part of the appeal was that, okay, if we get this winery up and running and, you know, we have an opportunity to kind of put a, a city back on the map, you know, and 
But so I, that was kind of cool to me. And, yeah, and so to be there on the ground level, you know, right. I mean, this was the first vineyard that that was that is planted out there, and I mean, you have the ability to kind of, uh, you know, really create the style of that wine. Right. Yeah. So let's kind of dig, dig into, I think we've kind of uh, glanced over some of the wines that you've done, but um, let's, kind of, let's kind of dig into, you know, what is part of the winery portfolio right now. Um, we start with the white. You make a, a, a white. Yeah, uh, so we, we opened with uh, two whites, a rosé and two reds. Uh, the first white was a small lot Muscat blend. We did, um, it's a Muscat Blanc, Muscat Giallo, and Orange Muscat. Uh, all Texas, and th- from the start, you know, this was going to be kind of our fun wine. We know there's a fair bit of sweet wine drinkers in Texas, right. but we still wanted to kind of maintain the integrity of RLV and and in producing a product, a premium a premium product. We feel like even sophisticated wine drinkers are always really surprised and enjoy this wine because it's not sweet. It's uh, we call it off dry, but there's about 0.5 percent RS on there or residual sugar. So it's still really pleasant wine to drink it's got those nice muscat characteristics do you see other wineries kind of doing that um that that sort of i mean i know that you know we were kind of trying to change the stigma about muscat with this wine you know because most wineries when they do muscat at least from what i've seen they always have a really sweet very sweet very sweet right and that's why everyone's always surprised when they try ours because it's not sweet right um but i feel like we're you know kind of redefining muscat in that well, way. Well, I mean, that's a really good point because um, because muscat throughout the ages, first of all, it's a very old variety. Uh, so it's like much older than, say, Chardonnay or, uh, you know, some of the, the, the white varieties that we know around. Uh, and it also, throughout the ages, was a very acclaimed grape. I mean, some of the most famous wines uh, throughout time, you know, famous in the Greek islands. Uh, but now I, I think it is, it's kind of taken like a tank. A, a, a yeah, there's dive. a little bit of taboo with it you know and, and for whatever reason it was pinholed as kind of a sweet right variety but the aromatics know? can be amazing i mean when you're smelling this thing ferment or like when you're eating the berries yeah I mean, done right you know and this was this was left on the lees after fermentation and i you know, rachel and i would go in and stir it every other day and and, and just kind of help build some of those aromatics and release some of that aromatic potential from the lees yeah and it you know we we're, we're turned out really you know really nice Right, right, right. And and then is it blended at all? Because sometimes it can have a little bit, not enough acidity to make it fresh, or is it is this just... No, we, you know, we har- we didn't harvest really late, you know. Right. We, we were trying to preserve some of that acidity, um, and so we picked it slightly early. Yeah, very cool. Um, and, and so that keeps the acidity, the freshness. Keeps the acidity fresh, you know, it's, it's not a real high alcohol, you know, right. it's right around... 13 and, and that do you do you call what do you call that again uh that is is it that's a small lot muscat blend small lot muscat and if folks are are, are, are uh, just tuning in or wanting to follow at home uh we've got kyle johnston here uh from rlv and folks can find more information at rlv.wine i believe is the, is the website there to go for for all of the particulars about the wines okay you said two rosés well, we did one rosé. Oh, one rosé. Uh, so it's a okay. Senso rosé, and all of our whites and, and the rosé and the Senso was hand-picked. Um, so we get really clean fruit back at the winery, and even there we send it through a pretty rigorous sorting process. So we try to get all the mog out, all the matter other than grapes. 
Um, so what goes into the press is just fruit. And that's another thing that, that differentiates really small kind of artisanal producers, right? Right. You know, being small, we're, you know, we can hand harvest, you know, larger producers aren't, don't necessarily have, you know, if they've got 10 acres, you know, it's hard to hand harvest 10 acres right. and, and still make money. Yeah. Um, right, so, right. you know, it's expensive, but you know, our owners are, are dedicated to producing premium Texas wine. And, right. and so they've kind of they spared no expense. Yeah. So, 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 so back to the rosé though, that, that is it done in a traditional like French style? It's done in like kind of that Provencal style, Yeah. you know, yeah. so real light color, fresh acidity, um, nice like strawberry notes. And you pick that earlier too, earlier? We did pick that earlier. So on the vine, you know, it was designated to be rosé. So we, it wasn't just like, maybe we'll do rosés. Like it was grown to be rosé. Right. That is such a, you know, I can't, can't emphasize that enough because right now, Texas, we're really in a kind of a rosé revolution. I mean, I don't know um, if, if I can, yeah, we, you know, be we, so bold to say that, but... We uh, missed out on getting in on the Texas wine revolution that they had a couple of weeks back. Right, right, right. And we, we certainly, um, you know, really are rooting for, for those guys and um, 100% Texas wines. And, uh, and I think, you know, rosé is such a great style for this because you can harvest it earlier to make destined and, and beautiful rosé. Um, whereas if it's like, you know, in California, a really big way of making rosé is through the Saignet method where it's like a byproduct of red wine fermentation. Right. Which I have, I've made Saignet style before, but it was kind of cool to be able to make this, uh, you know, press it out. Right. Right. And, 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 uh, and is this kind of your, your style or sometimes you get a little bit more tannin in Saignet style. Uh, right. Right. And, and well, it was, the goal of this wine was to be that kind of Provencal style rosé right and so very light color so we didn't want a lot of tannin we didn't want um a ton of color right right and i think that that's what the, the market is really asking for right now is that light delicate you know it's very easy to drink i mean but it still has kind of a creaminess to it um there's no malolactic on it uh, right but, but by the taste it kind of it seems like there would be has that freshness it's just smooth and it's very nice yeah. both the muscat and the and the rosé one silvers at Texom International. Yeah, so, so you know, one of the biggest um, wine competitions now today and and, and almost uh, countrywide. I mean, there's wines submitted from all over the world. And um, and Texam is the the conference that happens for listeners out there who don't who aren't familiar. Uh, the, it's a conference for sommeliers and all kinds of people in the industry that happens in August, and uh, the wine competition happens in I believe January or so. So then they release the results, and so the rosé did really well. Rosé did really well. I mean, it's just kind of cool to come out of the gate winning awards um, yeah. at, a, at a competition like that. Uh, yeah, well, especially with the muscat winning a silver, you know, you don't really see muscats winning awards. Period. No, you don't. Te Texas muscats. Yeah, right. And then, um, and then let's you know, let's get into the reds. So what? Um, well, there's one more white. Okay, it's okay. The, we call it. It's basically the Roman numeral three. Okay, we call it the three, and it's a, a Rhone style white blend of Viognier, Roussan, and Marsan. Right. Partial partial barrel fermentations on the Marsan and Roussan, and then aged the Roussan for about two and a half months. Can you kind of tell us uh, what each of the, what kind of characteristics come from each of those grapes? Because it's a, it's a traditional blend, but yeah. Know. So we, we, uh, like you were saying earlier, a lot of thought goes in to these wines. Um, so the Viognier 
typically I've seen if you if you let Viognier hang, you know, if you're trying to push it up to get that bricks concentration that you're looking for, it can kind of be overripe banana kind of characteristics. Right, right. Um, so we wanted to we wanted to not do that. And you know, we harvested about 21, 22 bricks in order to preserve some acidity. We wanted that to be um, kind of big up front because we knew the Roussan, we we but you still got ripeness. We you did, still, yeah. We still got you know ripeness in the in the skins, um, but we wanted to hold on to some of that acidity. You know, I've seen as you let Viognier hang, the pH starts to go up right. as well. Yeah. And so we wanted to kind of keep that pH low, and prevented us from you know doing manipulations in the cellar later. Right. So, uh, and we knew the the the, Mar- the Roussan was going to be able to hang a little bit and kind of bring that alcohol, yeah, composition that we, you know, once we put the blend together. And then the Marsan, man. Have you ever worked with Marsan? No, no. I, I, I've I've drank it, um, but but uh, it, it kind of honestly it puzzled me a little bit, you know, because it just kind of gets these weird, funky characters, and you're like, you know, is this even going to be good? Right, and, right. You know, but I kind of kept at it and, per, and persisted with it, and was able to clean it up. And it actually, I think, you know, it's sixteen percent in this in the three, right? But I think it really shows through. It kind of gave like some body to the wine and just gave a little more complexity to it. Okay, cool. So, you know, a lot of what we're seeing, so it's cool that you're doing this blend. I think we're seeing a lot of uh, single varietal Roussons, right? I mean, of course, Viognier was one of the, maybe like five, six years ago, uh, one of the white grapes that folks were like, oh, this is our Texas white grape. Right, and we even considered, you know, we debated making a varietal Viognier with what we had, but... Once we put the blend together, we just said, "Well, this is a better wine." And right. So, yeah, and uh, and that's you ask you have to ask yourself, you know, a lot of the, you come to a lot of these decisions you have to make during harvest, you know, because a lot of times you have a plan, but then stuff happens and you right, kind of roll with the punches. Right, right. And so we said, you know what, this Viognier is pretty stellar, but I think it's better. Better. It's a more complex, more unique wine. Yeah, blended with the Roussan and Marsan, and I feel like Roussan. Uh, then I think a little, a couple of years after, you started to see single bottlings mm-hmm. of Roussan, and I think that that's very interesting too. And, and I don't know, like, is there a taboo against white blends? Um, do, do you see that? I, I I do see a little bit of it. Yeah, I mean, I I think that blends get a little bit of a. Um, I I think that less so with reds because you've got really famous wines that you know from California, et cetera, that that are blends. But um, I, I do feel like whites. I mean, people want to drink yeah, Sauvignon Blanc or they want to drink I think Chardonnay. Whatever, you know, tasted blind. You know, the three would probably do well. But if you knew it was a blend, you know, maybe people would. I do think, though, that um, because the Rhone Valley is, we're, we're, we're feeling this, um, we're feeling this kind of sister uh, wine region with like the Rhone Valley and like in all of Provence and um, where you have like the very famous wines from uh, Bandol, which are more ved. And, um, and so I feel like people are more open to it because if they know, oh, a white Rhone is, you know, typically a blend of Viognier, Roussan, Roussan, Marsan often are blended together. Mm-hmm. Very, um, so I think that it's like anything, it's easy to fall into a rut as I like Chardonnay. I like this, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, the things that you see on 80% of the, the, the shelves in the retail stores. But I think with education, uh, people are open to it, and it's the way that they've traditionally done it in their own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And who's? I mean, next year it may just be 
maybe Viognier and Marsan or Viognier and Roussan, just whatever ends up making the better wine. But, right, right. Or maybe we just do a varietal Roussan. Yeah. So I, I keep everything separate. I don't just, you know, everything's kept separate until we go to blend. And then do you bottle like pretty quickly after blending or do you let it mellow out a little bit? So there was a little bit of pressure to get wine bottled uh-huh. for 2016. Right. And so I, I got it ready pretty quickly. Okay. So the Muscat, the uh the three and the rosé right. were all done pretty quickly, and then we acquired the reds, and so bottled all five at the end of November. Right. So let's talk about the reds. So two different styles, right? Or two, two different, different styles. Kind of- well, it's kind of a medium-bodied. It's called the blend one. Um, medium-bodied, real approachable, yeah. drinkable red wine, kind of your everyday table red. Right. Uh, heavy Montepulciano, and then there's there's bits of Morved, Malbec, Petit Syrah, Sagrantino, and Tanat. So kind of like a blend yeah 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 and then um we've got a little bit heavier little fuller bodied red it's the montepulciano with a little bit of sagrantino Ah. Uh, and we've only got about 30 cases of that left so it's it's moving pretty well yeah yeah and sagrantino is interesting you mentioned that because there's there's a few wineries doing that and that's the grape uh if if you've never heard of sagrantino don't don't be surprised (laughs) i mean it's pretty obscure it comes from a little village of montefalco in umbria italy and now because of you know the the really ripe tannins that we can get here in texas a lot of wine winemakers are playing with it right and and it's the, the pH of this wine was three, which if you're familiar with winemaking, it's very acidic. Wow. Yeah. And so we, we liked it because it kind of brought this acidity to the reds. Um, but it's got really good color too. Yeah. And, um, and then how are the tannins? I mean, is it a, like a full body? So it, it's, it's not up? like, it's not gonna, you're not gonna chew on it or anything, right. uh, but it's, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice red. Yeah. Well, um, Kyle, we, we have to take a, a, one last short break before we kind of wrap up and have some kind of final thoughts from you. Um, if you're just uh, joining us, my name is Mark Rayshop. This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. It's K-O-O-P HD1 HD3 Hornsby. This is community radio for Austin, Texas. And uh, we're going to hear from one of our underwriters and be right back. All right, we are back. Thank you so much for tuning in. Here we are here with Kyle Johnston, who is a winemaker for the new and up and coming RLV, uh, which is out in uh, Coleman County, uh, near in Coleman, Texas, just south of Abilene, um, and kind of a destination ranch sort of feel. Uh, although there's this first vineyard planted, and there's a, a lot of efforts to bring more vineyards there. Um, and, and so, you know, Kyle, what, what's, what's your impression about this, uh, Coleman being like an up and coming, you know, where there's way more vineyards and, uh, eventually kind of, uh, takes on an AVA status, I mean, just like the hill. Yeah, that's the definitely the goal. I, mean, I think we're trying to take the steps to do that. I think first we have to, you know, be making premium wine, but we are trying to create this destination in Coleman, um, you know, somewhere for people, you know, Austinites and people in Dallas, Fort Worth can kind of escape the big city right. and get out to the country, take a deep breath, have premium wines, premium food, yeah, um, stay in premium accommodations and, and, you know, they can 
be out of their comfort zone, but still comfortable. Sure, and not have to go out to Napa Valley or something, you know, or, right. or some other, you know, kind of primo wine wine country. Um, do you what What else are you kind of excited about uh, in the Texas industry? I mean, we've seen such crazy growth, and you've been, uh, you know, seeing so many different vineyards pop up and varieties pop up. Where do you think we're kind of going? I mean, you're making a Muscat, which is a little bit kind of pushing the bar, and um, and Sagrantino and some kind of obscure grape varieties. Do you see us continuing to try, uh, you know, experiment with new grape varieties? Oh, definitely. And and I think what's cool is that a lot of these, a lot of the growers, they're they're passionate as well about learning more and getting better, because the only way that we're going to elevate or continue to elevate Texas wines is if we continue to get better fruit. Right. And and so I, I'm seeing a big push for that. Um, growers growers wanting to do their part because they know how important they are. Right. Because uh, we, we just, we can't make, you know, you've heard the saying, you can't make good wine from bad grapes. Absolutely not, yeah. What about, I, I, you know, I'm seeing some more different, like, styled wines coming out of Texas, uh, which, you know, takes some education and this and that. Like, you know, there's some sparkling wines coming out or there's some... Yeah, I think it definitely depends on, you know, the, the size of your winery and what your what your business model is. Right. You know, we're being small, we can experiment with different wines like that. And if we wanted to do a small case run of something kind of obscure, you know, and unload it to our wine club, you know, right. we can do that. And you're seeing that unloads a, lot. a ba- unloads a bad word. Unloads it's, a bad it's, word. It's, oh, yeah. it's um, <laughs> you know, offer offer it you know but only offer to, it to our wine club. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> thanks for catching me on that. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, we should say that, 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 a, I mean, you know, a premium winery that is focusing on their wine club, you know, if they do some 50 cases and that's that, that will, you know, service the wine club. I mean, I do feel that some wineries do kind of unload wine on their wine club, but, yeah, yeah. but, 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 <laughs> you know, but that is not good for, you know, the long term. Um, and then yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's growers in the hill country, uh, that are establishing these relationships with with wineries and winemakers, and they're planning things that the winemakers are interested in in making wine with and, and experimenting with. Um, so you see, I think like Doug Lewis is doing some Tintical, yeah, which is intriguing. Um, well, so I mean, you know, we got to wrap this up, um, Kyle. I wanted to thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Martin. So, Kyle Johnston, who is winemaker of RLV out in Coleman, Texas, and we're going to turn over the reins to Tracy Schultz at Remix. Um, stay tuned for wonderful programming on Co-op K O O P ninety one point seven FM and K O O P dot O R G. We'll see you next week. <laughs>